Amen. Please be seated. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be spending our time in Genesis chapter 3, with particular emphasis on verses 8 through 15, and very specific emphasis on verse 15 itself. You know, this Sunday, if you've not caught on, marks the first Sunday of our Advent season. Uh, This is a time of the year where we take the four Sundays prior to leading up to Christmas to cover different aspects of the birth of Christ and the importance of it. And there's many ways you can do that. Uh, And this year in particular, um, we are going to look at four Old Testament prophecies. We're going to look at four passages from the Old Testament that spoke to or spoke about the coming of Christ. You see, for many, the the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, was a great surprise, a great shock, but it shouldn't have been. Because from the very beginning, from the earliest sections of Scripture, His birth was foretold. The promises of who He was and what He was going to do were brought forth, so much so that we can look back at them now with confidence And we can look back at them now to see how God's been laying out this plan all along. And so really what we're going to be doing um, this morning and and, in the following Sundays is to consider. Is to consider that our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. But we have to start with a problem. And, and, you know, it's not good to do that, uh, to always start with a problem. You may seem think Genesis 3, that's kind of an odd place to go this morning for Advent, but it's precisely where we must start. For there is a great problem going on. Adam and Eve have sinned. They have sinned against God. They have disobeyed. God said, you may eat of anything in this garden except the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that is precisely the very tree that they ate of. After that, they hide their shame. They hide, run away from God, or at least attempt to. And they quickly realize you can't hide from God, as many did in the Scriptures learned. And because of this, there are consequences. There are punishments. There are implications that, that, that will um, be for them and all of those after them. And here we are today still living in some of these consequences for their decisions. But even so, there is hope. And even all the way back here to to the first couple, to Adam and Eve, to the first sin, to the disobedience, the punishment of it, the judgment with it, there is hope. Because in it, we see God's plan of salvation in seed form through the child. The child of promise, the child of hope. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And with that being said, I do invite you to turn with me. And while we're going to be focusing on verses 8 to 15 this morning, I would like to read starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 so we have the context. Would you please follow along with me? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. 
neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please bow with me as we ask his blessing upon this time? O Lord our God, may we think about our own sin as we consider the sin that has taken place. May we consider our own desires, our own ability, our own attempts to hide from the very one that we need the most. Lord God, may we consider our need for you and our need for a Savior and our need for salvation. And oh Lord, may we consider this morning that that which we need has been fulfilled and is offered to us freely in and through Jesus Christ. Please be with us now, O Lord. Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we might receive your word today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I mentioned earlier, and I bring it up again, we really start Advent with a problem, a great problem. All of a sudden, there is sin this sin is seen in, in, in many ways. It's, it's brokenness, it's division, it's, it's embarrassment, it's shame. It's, um, we can see between Adam and Eve, we were told in the text, um, they were, or if you read through in 1 and 2, they were naked and unashamed. There was a closeness, there was an intimacy, there was, there was a sharedness between them. That was beautiful and pure and as it should be, but then sin entered. And all of a sudden, embarrassment and worry and anxiety creep in. There's a, hey, wait a minute, I'm not clothed before you. And for the other person, you're not clothed either. Let's hide. That which there was openness, there now is hiddenness, if you will. 
But as much as this takes place, there's an even greater problem. It's not just a problem between Adam and Eve. It's not just a desire to hide from each other's shame. There's a desire to hide from God. There's a brokenness not only in the marriage relationship, but there's a brokenness in the relationship between man and between God. Between man and between God. They hide. There is shame, there is worry, there is fear, there is anxiety. Interestingly enough, it's the same problem both directions. And they attempt the same solution. Adam and Eve feel open, exposed, embarrassed between each other, so they hide. They clothe themselves with fig leaves. They consider God and there is shame and fear and anxiety and worry, so they hide. And what does the text say? They hid themselves in the trees. They tried the same thing twice. It doesn't work either time. They feel exposed, so they must cover themselves. Their life of paradise and complete enjoyment has come to an end. But God, and oh how powerful that phrase is, but God being rich in mercy, he did not leave them in this state. God did not immediately turn to wrath and anger. Instead, he comes to them with patience calm, and in love. And he makes promises. Even in judgment, he makes promises. Promises that would ultimately bring restoration. Promises that would ultimately undo that which had been done. And that really is not the best way to put it. Rather, it would, be, it would do well to say it like this. The problem would be paid for by the child of promise. The problem, sin, separation, Brokenness between man and God would be paid for, would be fixed, would be ratified through the child of promise. Really what we get here is a promise of a Savior to come. We know as um, what we will call New Testament Christians or or those that live post-New Testament, we know that that Savior is Christ. We know that Christ came to take on our sinfulness. And we see how Christ, even in this earliest stage, even in the the first example of this, we see how Christ would do this. And as we consider each of these this morning, I do want you to think about Jesus Christ. I want you to consider this morning how Jesus Christ is offered as the promise is made. We see it while the curse is given, a promise is made. I also want us to see this morning that that is made, that promise is made through an act of war. War is declared. And then finally, I want us to consider that the victory to that war, the fulfillment of that promise, comes through a child. An unlikely place to look, but that promise is fulfilled. The war is won through a child. We'll look at each of these sections in turn. I invite you to follow along with me. First, a curse is given and a promise is made. We get to verse 8 and we realize God is in the garden. Uh, Apparently, uh, this was common for uh, God to come and to walk in the garden in the coolness of the day to meet with and talk with and, and enjoy fellowship with Adam and Eve. This is something to look forward to. But again, we see that brokenness, don't we? That which was good and a blessing and joy now is something of anxiety and fear and worry. Oh no, God is coming. 
And I want to pause real, real quick. I, I, I can't um, jump over this. God asked, where are you? Now, did God need to know where Adam and Eve were? The, the, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of their lives, was he fooled by a game of hide and seek? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, God was, as we often do as parents, giving Adam and Eve an opportunity to come forth to admit that which they had done. He knew what they had done. He had caught them in it, and he's given them a chance to come and tell, to confess, to stand before him. And this is an act of mercy by God. This, we, you should see this, and you should say how merciful is God that he walks in the garden. He comes to them, where are you? He didn't cease to communicate. He didn't shut that door, that avenue. He didn't turn his back on them. And in, in, in that, I want you to see this, and, and this is seen all throughout our passage this morning. God is the one pursuing Adam and Eve. Even in their sin, even in their brokenness, even in their disobedience, even though they should have been the ones coming to God again and again and again and again, God is the one coming to them. God is the one pursuing them. God is the one fixing them. God is the one helping them. God is the initiator. This is a great picture. This is a beautiful picture for us today. This is what sin does. It breaks us. It creates division. It, it causes us to flee from the very thing we need. And yet this is also a beautiful picture of the gospel because God still comes to us. We run, he pursues. We hide, he finds. God comes to us. He meets us where we are. We see the brokenness on full display and the response. God asked, asked Adam and Eve, where are you? And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Oh, if that would have been the only problem they had. But then, instead of confessing, what did you do? They blame shift. And if you want a, a, a crash course on what marriage shouldn't look like this morning, right here. Adam, did you do what I, didn't what I told you not to do? Well, it was Eve's fault. Which, by the way, he's bold. you got to give him credit. That woman that you gave me. Because what is Adam actually saying here? He's not just saying Eve's the problem. He's actually going, God, you did it. Think about that. It's a bold man. He's a coward, but he's a bold man. It's your fault, God. You're the problem because Eve did it. God's like, let's put a pause on that. Eve, what happened? Same thing. We, we, we don't want either party uh, inexcused here. Instead of admitting her fault, admitting her failure, admitting her sin, well, it was that serpent. He did it. It's his fault. Who created the serpent? God did. So what is Eve saying? Same thing Adam was. Really, you're kind of part of the problem, God. It's kind of your fault here. Adam's saying you made Eve. Eve's saying you made the serpent. This is kind of your mess. That's what sin does, by the way. That, that, that's what sin causes in our lives. Adam and Eve are unwilling to take ownership of their problems. 
They do not admit their faults. Rather, they pass them off to others. Oh, have they come a long way in just a short period of time, living a life of contentment and fulfillment and walking in fellowship and communion with God to, to now what we see before them. And before we move forward, isn't this a picture of society today? Like, doesn't this show us even from the earliest pages of Scripture what life apart from God looks like? Can't we think about in the world that we live in, blame shifting and aggravation and anxiety and worry and fear and panic? People not taking responsibility, people not answering honestly for that which they've done? That's what a lack of God does. When we take God out of the equation, this is what you get as a result. And yet... And yet, while all of that's true and all of that certainly took place, again, we see God is the one pursuing Adam and Eve. God is the one bringing restoration. God is the one bringing solution. God is the one fixing the problem. And and the way he tells us this really is interesting, isn't it? He never goes back to Adam and Eve, really. I mean, they get their punishments, and if we'd have kept reading, we'd have read through that. But God answers their problems by cursing the serpent. And don't miss that. Don't miss that. The the answer to the problem of man is through the curse of the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Oh, we don't have time this morning, but we could do a deep exegetical study of this and, and really dig into, um, it's kind of twofold here. You've got the creature of the serpent, who God made craftier than any other creature. You can read into that, it, it could lead to pride, it could lead to arrogance. And then you've got Satan, who uses the serpent. There's a, there's a possession here, Satan possessing the serpent, acting through the serpent. And yet, they're both called down. The, the, the serpent... You get this image in your head, this mental picture. We don't know if it's true or not of the serpent standing up almost like man, trying to walk like man, trying to act like man. We know that because the curse to the serpent, to the creature itself, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so the creature itself, we we get this sense of it was trying to take a place, take a role that it didn't have. It was trying to act like that which it was not. But... I, I, love, I love what John Calvin says here. We must now make a transition from the serpent to the author of mischief himself. That not only in the way of comparison, for there is a literal analogy going on, but because God has not so vented his anger upon the outward instrument as to spare the devil with whom lay all of the blame. The serpent, the the creature, may have agreed to be used in this way, but the devil himself is the orchestrator. The devil himself is the one who hates God and hates God's children. The devil himself is the one who carries out this act of temptation. And it's the devil that receives the harshest judgment. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, while we're in this section of, of curse and promise, um, 
I want to just make some, some general uh, points of application, some observations before we move on to more particular ones. Adam and Eve were told that the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you shall die. Consequence for their action. What would have been just in that moment? Immediate death. Immediate death would have been just. That's what they deserved. It's not what they got. It's what they deserve. And yet, that's exactly what they got. Death. When sin entered into them, they became creatures of death. They would see it through their lives. Um, They would decay as they age. There's going to be all sorts of problems. We know that again if we went kept going. Um, there's going to be pain in childbirth. Uh, there's going to be the, the ground itself is going to fight against uh, the work. There's going to be strife in the, the marriage. They did enter into death. However, they didn't get stricken immediately. That was a mercy. God did not kill them on the spot. That was mercy. Secondly, God had a plan. You read this passage, you read this curse, this is an act of judgment against Satan, and you you walk away going, oh, God's got a plan to fix this. Almost as if he knew, almost as if he had orchestrated a a solution well before the problem had even occurred. And we know that to be true, that that God in eternity past, um, through his own divine counsel, agreed upon the triune God to send the Son to save mankind from their sin. God had a plan. And God is saying to Satan here, I have a plan and it will be executed as I have stated it. I will rescue Adam and Eve and I will do it through their offspring. And then thirdly, here's another um, consequence of this. Satan will lose. Satan will lose. He's not going to win this one. Yes, he struck at Adam and Eve. Yes, he caused them to sin. Yes, he created more brokenness in the world. But he loses this exchange. I guarantee you, when Adam and Eve came to God and when they were living in their fear and they were worried about what's going to happen, they didn't expect to hear what they heard. I guarantee you, they, they weren't counting on God offering that which he offered. And yet at the same time, this should get us excited. We should always, 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 anytime we see promises in Scripture, we should pay careful note particularly promises like this where we can ask, does God keep his promises? Yes, he does. How do we know it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just flip on forward. About 36, 37 books. Flip on forward and ask, did he do what he said he would do? Yes, he did. And then by implication, will he then do that which he says he will do? Yes, he will. And so we see here, even in this dark moment, even in this spot, there is a curse There is judgment because of sin. There is also hope. There's a promise that things are going to move forward and that it's going to be fixed. How? How would it be fixed? Be fixed by an act of war. It would be fixed by an act of war. And that's our second point this morning. God declares war on our enemy. And I don't want you to miss, just like in that first point, God's the one that came to Adam and Eve in the garden. Also, God is the one that initiates war. He doesn't do here, all right, Adam and Eve, you blew it. You really messed it up. Now go fix it. 
Here are your battle plans. Satan is the enemy. Go get him. Good luck. He didn't send them off to fight. They'd already lost. They couldn't win. No, God himself declares war on the serpent. God himself declares the victory in the battle. I don't want to be careful how you hear this, but after God does that, from a humanly perspective, he makes one of the worst tactical moves one could make in warfare. He tells the enemy exactly how he's going to do it. Again, hear me. I'm not saying God made an error. From a humanly perspective, a humanly tactical perspective, you don't tell the enemy, by the way, we're going to war and here's exactly my battle plan. Awful uh, tactical advice. I'm going to come back to that in a minute and tell you that I shouldn't have said that. But listen to what he says. I'm going to create separation. First, in my act of war, I'm going to separate. I'm going to create division. You came to create division. I'm going to create division. I'm going to create division between you and her offspring. I'm going to create separation to the point that there's going to be hatred, but it's not hatred of me as in God. It's hatred of you. Children of God will despise the serpent. Children of God will will hate Satan and will seek to flee from him and, and will want to live godly lives and not pursue that of Satan. God actually takes the tactic of Satan and turns it on its head. You want a division, I'll give you division. But that's not the, the biggest tactical move here, is it? God says, there will be a battle. There will be an attack. Two parties, the man and the serpent. The serpent is going to strike at the heel, noting that the serpent's on his belly. That's the highest the serpent can reach. The serpent may strike the heel, and in, um, in the ESV, it translates that word bruise. But ultimately, while the serpent strikes at the heel and he, he, he does attack, man will bruise the head of the serpent. Now, if you're reading a translation any other than the ESV, a lot of them at this point translates that word crush. Uh, they, they put a, an emphasis on it to really show, well, you may, as a serpent, strike at my heel, but when the foot comes down on the head of the serpent, it will be crushed. Linguistically, we shouldn't do that. It's the exact same word. It should be translated the same way both times. That being said, crush does convey that what would take place. And so I understand why some translations make this. Because what happens when our head is bruised? What happens when the foot lands on the head at death? It is a fatal blow. Not saying man would go unscathed. Jesus Christ certainly didn't go unscathed in the battle. He died. He gave up his life. That is a, certainly a, a, a blow, a bruise to the heel. But Satan was crushed. Once and for all, Satan was defeated at the cross And particularly upon that glorious morning, I mean, you can picture it as Satan as he's sitting around those three days when Christ is in the tomb and he's doing his victory dance and he's throwing his party and he's like, we did it. We won. I got him. And then resurrection morning. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He's supposed to be there. Uh Uh-oh. Who opened the tomb? Uh Uh-oh. And then it just unravels, complete deflation, because he knows he's been crushed. 
He, he knows he's been crushed. And, and look, here's where I tell you, I, I probably shouldn't even have said jokingly earlier that, that God made a tactical error because only God could do it. God is God because he can tell the enemy, this is what I'm going to do. And then he's going to do it just like he said he was. And even better, he's going to make the enemy play a part in it. How do we say that the victory is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? By Satan taking part in the death of Jesus Christ. Do you get how bizarre that is? Do you get how crazy that is? God not only told the enemy exactly what he was going to do, he used the enemy to accomplish that purpose. God can do that. We can't. That's God. That is, that is playing at a tactical level that, that we can't even comprehend or grasp. Warfare will happen, and it will be victorious for the Lord. And there's one more piece I, I want to bring to our attention this morning, and, and this is what brings us back to Advent, and that's what ties all of this together. And again, it does it in a bizarre way. This victory, this promise that's been made, this war that will be conquered, will be conquered through a child. Through a child. And here again, we see the blessing and the patience and the love of God because God promises future children. Not only did God not destroy Adam and Eve right where they stood, but they, he allowed them the blessing of that which they came to do. For Adam, you are still going to get to work. It's just going to be toil and sweat in it, and it's not going to yield its fullest harvest. For Eve, you will have children. You will get to birth children. It's just going to be painful, and it's going to be hard. It wasn't taken away from them. It was complicated. But there's a promise. Even in that, not, not only are they going to be able to have children, but God says it's through the child. It's through your offspring. It's through a descendant. It's, it's through one to come that will conquer and accomplish this victory. We zoom out just a little bit, and if you've been with us um, for any length of time, you know we're um, going through Genesis. Where This is actually a, a looking back. We, we've been in the life and history of Abraham and we think about that promise. What is the promise that God makes to Abraham? You will be the father of many nations. Through you, through your bloodline, salvation would come to all. That was the promise. Through you, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. This is significant. This is important. If you flip over to the book of Matthew for a second, Matthew chapter 1, we see something pretty neat. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham. Why did Matthew tie Jesus Christ to Abraham? Because Jesus is the one, the child, the descendant through his bloodline of Abraham that would bless the nations. That would usher in a kingdom of people who believe in God. Remember, that was what marked Abraham's descendants. They will worship me. 
This comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that which God promised Abraham. But it gets better. Flip over to Luke, Luke 3. Matthew, is um, he places an emphasis on tying Jesus to Abraham, um, primarily a Jewish audience in the book of Matthew. Uh, Luke uh, desires um, to give us a full account of that which took place. He wants an accurate description of everything that took place. And in his genealogy of Christ, he does not stop with Abraham. Abraham's mentioned. Um, he's mentioned in verse 34, but... Luke chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 23, if you read through here and you look at the bloodline of Christ, we zoom past Abraham and we get to the last verse, verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus Christ, why? Why, do we, why does Luke tie it that far back? Because what's being said here? A child one of this line, a seed of the woman, will defeat the serpent. One of this line will do that which has been promised. And Jesus Christ was the one to do it. Jesus Christ, who came into this world as a child, who entered into this world as a helpless child. I, I, I don't know if you've been in that season of life. We're very much in it now. Um, there's this wonderful, fascinating thing about children they need you or they die. Quite literally. You know, you, they get older and they can kind of fend for themselves and feed themselves and do all these things. But if you don't take care of a, of a baby, of a newborn, physically and literally, everything they need for life are dependent upon you for. Think about that. And then... Think about the fact that the Savior of the universe, the Creator, the one who made all things and has 10,000 angels at his beck and call, at any point he can snap his fingers, he can say, come, they come. He put himself in a position that if Mary did not feed him herself, he dies. If Mary did not change him, he gets sick and dies. If Mary and Joseph did not keep him warm and, and take care of him and watch over him, he dies. Do you grasp the significance of that? Jesus Christ came as a child. And yet that's precisely what he came to do, and that's precisely what he did. Why? Because that's what God said would happen. Again, God is simply doing that which he said he's going to do. He's a God who keeps his promises. A seed of the woman would Bruise the head of the serpent. Oh, I love this time of year. I, I, I love this time of year because we get to focus on Christ and his coming. God's radical plan of salvation came through the promise of a son. And as we close this morning, it would be wrong of me not to let you know you're still under that promise. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ to this day you want life, if you want hope, if you want restoration, if you were tired of the brokenness, if you were tired of the shame and the fear and the anxiety and the worry, listen to what God said to Adam and Eve. Look for the Son. Listen, await, and hope in the Son.
And here we are as post-New Testament Christians that we get to read that and then we get to move forward and go, and he came. He came. And so may we, this Advent season, may we look to the Son, the Son who offers promise, the Son who initiates war and fulfills it. And he does so by offering his own life for those who would trust in him by faith. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a joyful time of year. The busyness of the world around us attempts to draw our attention, to take us away, to tell us what's important, what's significant, what matters. But we as your people, O Lord, I pray that this is a season where we reflect upon, we celebrate, and we appreciate what we need most as a Savior. And that's precisely what you've given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave Adam and Eve where you found them, but you promised them hope. You promised them forgiveness. You promised them salvation by the one to come. And we now know him, and we declare him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, O Lord. May these words bring truth and warmth to our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.